in our work about 10 years ago when I moved to Fayetteville, I set up a system in which every one of the elders had a group of people. And you know that if you try to see everybody, you'll end up seeing nobody. But each of us had a certain people that we kept in touch with, we kept them faithful. And of course the numbers grew and pretty soon I had a hundred people that I was supposed to see after and one man can't see after a hundred people. He can't even find out who's gone and why they went. But uh, we changed this then to the small groups. And four months out of the year, when well, we have the small groups on Sunday night, and then we're out for, we come back for four, and now we're out two months, and so we've got two months in between them. And of course, uh, I have a large house, and I have one room that's a, we call it our sun porch. It's all windows around the side. Am I missing that? And we, in our small groups on Sunday night, we have as high as 50. Now, last Sunday we had 854 in our services. And we have to have enough elders so each one of them have the people that they see after. And you find that those people begin to depend on you. And some of my people are old and they call me and I learned pretty quick to get some deacons in our group. But those older people need to go to the doctor. And you know, they want me to come get them and take them and bring them back. Well, by the time I get back, somebody else will want to go or something. So we just kept adding people to work with us. And we finally got all the deacons working. And we'll meet, we'll have as high as 50 in our meeting, and then we have something else that's attractive. We have a full meal every Sunday night after our services. We have a large kitchen with a large bar. Everything's just fine. Now, we can handle that 50 all right, but those 50 people have a lot of kids. And as soon as they get out at the church or wherever they are, you know, they're over at Brother Stanley's house because there's something to eat there. Now, why I'm telling you about this, this is a grace for that church. All of those meetings that we have is a grace. It's a benefit to them. It's a grace that they know who they can call. 
And they think about it is, you know, you, you will take advantage of things. Before I left uh, Saturday, the phone rang, and one young man, Jackie Chestnut, said, Brother Stanley, hand me the square feet in an acre. Well, what they had to do was to look up the word acre in a dictionary, and it would have told him. But you know, when you get to depend on somebody, you expect him to know all the answers. Now, I've told you this because those people are enjoying this church as a church that serves the members, that the church that the members have a part. And one boy said, that's the greatest grace that we've ever had. I just gave that as an illustration because Mike wanted me to say some things about grace tonight. And it's the most misunderstood word, I guess, in the dictionary. Now, the word of grace, the definition, is unmerited favors. And that means where you get it without works, where you get it without paying for it. Now, I have an idea tonight if I had announced and said, I'll tell you tonight how you make a million dollars in the next 30 days. Everybody that comes will make it. You think this church would have helped that? See, you offering them a grace, offering them a gift, one they weren't paying for. <clears throat> but we talk about grace, and we never talk about the real grace. Did you know the greatest grace that people have is our God? I just take him out of the picture, and where would we be? See, we forget the real graces. If you don't believe that God is grace, look what he does. Everything he does is grace. We didn't exist. And there was no way for us to exist without him. And then he didn't make a man. He gave man something that no other creation has. An unspeakable gift is what Paul calls it. He created us in his own image. Now, you just can't understand that unless you know what the image is. You can't understand what the image is unless you know what the word God means. Now, we read the Bible a lot of times. We think about God. And we think the Father's God and Jesus Christ is Lord and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Some of us don't know how to describe him. But that's missing the whole thing. The word God is not a person. I want that to soak in a minute. The word God is not a person. It doesn't intend for us to think of it as a person. 
because there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. All three of them is God. But all three of them is just one God. Now the truth about it is that God is a nature. The nature the Father has, the Son has that nature. The nature the Father and the Son has, the Holy Spirit has that nature. I'm human. He is human. All of you all are human. There's thousands of people who are humans, but they're just one humanity. See? So that takes away the idea of thinking because we got three people in the Godhead. How do we get one God? Because each of them have the nature of God. Well, what is that nature? That nature is the greatest gift that we ever have received. All of the omni words are used to express the nature of God. I is omnipresent. Father's omnipresent. The Son's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit's omnipresent. And don't ask me to explain that word. That means they're just every place at the same time. And we have a part of that nature in retrospect. Did you ever sit down in just a few minutes, just reminisce and go through all of your life? Well, God can do that forward. God can do that everywhere. He's omnipresent. But now he's omniscient. That means he is all-wise. He knows everything. That's the definition of the word God. The Father is all-wise. Christ is all-wise. The Holy Spirit is all-wise. That's the nature they have, and they all have the same nature. The three of them are one God. Now, he's not only just all-wise. But did you know he is omniforce? Now that word me omniforce means he can be in any form. He could be as the wind. He could be like Balaam when God put his voice in the ass. And can't you see that man talking to that ass? But when a man is his head set on doing what he wants to do, he's just as foolish. But Christ was omniforous, had a celestial body, things that we can't comprehend of the form he was in. You talk about God being grace. Christ just stripped himself. God, who created the heavens and all things therein and the earth and all things therein, and who made us. When we got in trouble and there was none that could help, 
except Christ. Now the trouble is, man had sinned. The wages of sin was death, and nothing was farther from God than sin. Nothing was farther from God than the results of sin. And every soul upon the earth sinned. Paul said, as Adam sinned, and all men have sinned due to what Adam did. All men tasted of death. Sooner or later, all of us materialized that death and went the way of all men. And the devil was the father of death. And he was the father of where the dead were. Now we call it the Hadean realm. The word Hades is a Greek word. And what it means is the unseen. There was a part of man that was seen. But we made in the image of God, the real part of us is unseen. So when that unseen part of us slipped out of that body and went to this unseen world, Satan owned it. He had stolen it. But he had power over death. And every living soul that died, he said to them, you are mine. And men cried to God, save us. And God gave us a grace. And we're missing the whole point. And Christ gave us a gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believed upon him should not perish, but have everlasting life, not life in Hades. Now, the devil had this realm called Hades, had two doors in it. And that's the way you entered into Hades. One was for the wicked. It's called torture or Tartarus. That's the word we get torture from. There was one called hope and rest or paradise. Those that believed in God and trusted in God went into paradise. And they waited. And you ask the question, why did God wait so long? The devil hindered him. And every time that God would get ready for his son to come, his son had to come in the flesh. Because the only way into where the lost were was through death. And God couldn't die. 
but man could. So in order to get the man that was in death, Christ had to become man to rescue man. Do you see that? And God so loved us that he let his son come and die for us. So, in order to rescue man, Christ died for us. That's grace. That Christ died for us. Where's the greater gift than the man that laid down his life for us? Now, I can't pay Christ for that. And if all of us wanted to, there's no way you could pay a debt like that. It's an unspeakable gift. But Christ came. And he, the Bible said, put not upon himself, or took not upon himself the nature of angels. Well, angels don't die. But he took upon himself the nature of the seed of Abraham so he could die. God was giving us his grace. And Christ came. And there had been a battle being fought since Genesis 3 when God said he'd put enmity between the Satan and between the woman. The woman's seed bruised his head, but he had only bruised the heel of the woman's seed. That simply meant that Christ was going to be bruised, going to die. And God knew that when he sent him. And Christ came and prayed for the Father. He said, it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he said, to this end came I into the world. That was my purpose. What a gift of grace. God, sinless, deathless, eternal, yet would, would condescend to come down and be subject to death, be subject to all the temptations, and if he just sin one time, he'd lose the battle. Now you think that wasn't a fearful ordeal? But he came. The first great temptation we see him coming was when he was baptized. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. I've read that and I just shiver. Here the Spirit of God leads him out there in the wilderness. Brother, this is physical temptation. You can't make this grade. You can't commence to go in the other one. And the Bible said he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet he sinned in none. Oh, why did you do that, Lord? said, I'm doing this for if I stand with 
I'm doing this forever Christian. What do you call that gift that you're giving us? You call it grace. It's God's unmerited favors. I didn't earn that. You didn't earn that. There's no way I could have earned it or you could have earned it, but God gave it to us. And the Bible said he loved us while we were yet sinners. That's unmerited, isn't it? But then came the time that he was on his way up to Jerusalem. He come from Galilee. He went around the back road. Went up through Jericho. And there he healed many on his way. It took him six months to make this last journey. Every place he went, thrones just followed him because of his miracles and his parables and his teaching. And on his way up, he came by Bethany. He'd just gotten a letter that Lazarus was dead. And he purposefully waited four days. And he said to the disciples, Lazarus is asleep. I must go wake him. Now you see the difference from the way he thinks and the way we think. They said, Master, if he sleeps, that's good. And he said, well, Lazarus is dead. And I must go to him. And they said, what's he going to die? They knew the kind of grace that he gave, man. They knew how much Jesus did for people he loved. And they were in great question. But when they came to Mary and Martha's house, this time the sisters changed. It was Mary that came out first. And said, Master, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. If you'd have been here, you could have given us grace. But your grace has to be done when you're here. And he said to her, Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. Now she came back with her understanding. She said, Lord, I know he'll raise again in the last days. Some more of these scriptures will misunderstand. And he said, Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she said, Lord, I believe that. He said, then today you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see what grace I really give. Then, you know, Martha came out. Almost the same thing transpired. 
And when he had talked to her, when he saw her weeping, when he saw what death really did, he wept. John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse, I guess, in the New Testament. And a lot of people quote that that's the only passage they know. They couldn't quote it. All of us together can't quote it. What do you think about the master of earth and skies and land and sea? The creator of all people and heaven and earth. Standing with us, crying for a death that we had. Just saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. The man that believes in me will never die. He was God, incarnate. God with man's clothes on. And while they wept, he said, where have you laid him? They said, Master, come see. Now, a lot of the people thought he was going out to weep at the grave like we do with each other. But he wasn't us. We human. He's God. When he came to that tomb, He said to Martha, roll away the stone. Oh, no, Lord. She said, he's been dead four days, but now, behold, he stinks. That's the reason Christ waited. He wanted him to be stinking. He wanted him to be dead and perishing. He wanted Richard Martin to have set up. He wanted them to see the difference in him and just us human beings. He said to her, didn't I say, if you believe that I'm the resurrection of the dead, today you'd see the glory of God? She said, yes, Lord, roll away the stone. Can't you see the difference in God and man? Can't you see the grace that's given us when God gave his son? What he's going to do for this woman, he does for all of us. And then he prayed to his father, and he said, Father, I say this to you for their benefit. And you know most of them heard it, and they didn't understand the word of it. But then when he stood up, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Here's a man, dead four days, wrapped in grave clothes. If it had been healthy and well wrapped that way, he couldn't have stood up. He just can't stand up on that condition. But he stood up, alive, real healthy. And Christ said, now you loose him and let him go. And they loosed him. Now, what?
What kind of grace would you call that? If you had somebody around that could do that for you when you were sick, the hospital, or when your loved ones died, how would you register that? One to ten, if he was here with you. Everything that Christ did demonstrated that God is grace. And all we have to do is to qualify to be a partaker of it. You know, there were people there with that crowd that when they saw that, they didn't stop to enjoy it. Well, they lit a flight into Jerusalem to tell the rulers of the synagogues, the rulers of Israel. And they sat down and began right that minute plotting how they may put him to death and kill Lazarus too, who was evidence. Do you think they appreciated that grace? Can't you see what makes grace grace to some people and death to others? That was on his trip. That was the week he was crucified. And that was the week that the people throwed palm leaves before him as he walked. And such noise and such shouting of people until the disciples said, Lord, tell the people to be quiet. And you know what the Lord said? He said, I tell you, if this people should be quiet, those stones would cry out and praise me. Just a stone had more realization of the grace of God than people. You heard about your hearts being as hard as stone. Christ said it was harder than stone. Now here they were going to crucify him. Here he demonstrated to them that very week he was crucified who he was. I am the resurrection and the life and never has there been a grace equal to that? Now, it's got a price tag on it. You can be partakers of the resurrection of life eternal. If you believe in me, and that's the reason the Bible said, for by grace are you saved through faith. God now has made it possible for all men to know who God is, who God loves, and what he wants to do for us. He wants to resurrect everybody like he did Lazarus. And they crucified him. They had fake trials. They lied on him. If that had been you, or if it had been me, 
I wouldn't have the kind of patience that Scott has. I'd have come down off that cross. That's just our nature, isn't it? I'd have mopped up on some people. But the grace of God was there even for the wicked. We can't understand grace. It's out of our realm. It's in the realm of God. But we can see it working. And they crucified him that same week that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was on a Thursday, contrary to you people saying that it was on a Friday, it wasn't. John said that day was a high day. And that means they had two Sabbaths. Put it back to Thursday. And we'll talk about that in another lesson sometime. But he spent three days and nights in that tomb. He did that because the Jews believed that a man's spirit still was present until after three days. He accommodated them. He wanted to remove everything that kept them from believing the wrong thing. And after that three days was finished, on the morning of the first day of the week, he came up. People that saw him come out of the grave. The grave now has lost its power. Death has no sting. Because of the grace of God in giving us his son. And that's what was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. That's what's been preached ever since. And there is no grace but the grace of Christ. There is no salvation except in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in the gift that he gave us. There is no escape from Hades except through his escape. There is no resurrection in life except through his resurrection in life. It's all here free for the taking. But the only way you can take it is through faith. But he added a little thing to that. You can't come and partake of my grace and stay in the world rebellious. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is a great act of grace. But he said, if you're going to come to me, let's just wash up and get ready. He that believeth that is baptized shall be saved. Faith is a way we receive grace. Repentance is the way we receive grace. Baptism is the way we receive grace. 
Obedience unto God is the way we receive grace, and no other can have it. The door of salvation is shut to you. God didn't shut it. You shut it. By refusing to believe. You shut it. By refusing to change. Repent. Turn around. You shut it. By refusing to clean up the past. And get rid of your past. So you can start out anew with God. Grace. Man, we live it at all times, don't we? We partake of it all the time. And then everything in our worship reminds us of the grace of God. The songs that we sing, we sing about what Jesus has done for us. The sermons we preach, we preach about what Jesus has done for us. When we commune, we remember what Jesus has done for us, and all of it is his power over death, hell, and the grave. He plucked the rose of immortality from the grave and planted it on the door of the tomb and shouted, Why? I am the resurrection and the life. Grace. There's so much grace until we never could use it up. But silly us, we're trying to do it ourselves. Why can't you come in faith? Why can't you turn in repentance? Why can't you wash and be clean? Why can't you enjoy instead of being like those people when they were told the story about Lazarus being raised, they said, let's kill the evidence. Are you an evidence killer? Or are you a grace acceptor? Now, I know I'm mostly talking to people who are members of the church tonight who know they're saved by grace. But you have children. You have grandchildren, have great-grandchildren, have neighbors, you have friends. Are you a stingy Christian? Have you not told them about the grace of God? Do you care so little about them? that you haven't told them what Christ has done for them. Oh, I know the grace of Christ will save us, but I know how negligent we are. I know how lazy we are. I know how seldom we talk about the Christ. Let me tell you, you're no more saved if you don't give that grace to others than if you hadn't accepted it. The rent that you pay on that grace is what you give to others to save them. And until the church remembers that the purpose of the church is to be evangelistic in those eight home Bible studies that we have, this term is be evangelistic. 
And most everyone has someone they're talking to. The interest you pay on that heavenly grace is to help someone else share in it. You don't have to be a scholar to teach. Anyone can tell about the story of Christ. Anyone can encourage it. If you can't teach them, then ask them to go with you to see your preacher, to see a friend, to see an elder, somebody that can help you, and you'll get help. Now, the grace you need tonight is given the grace you have to others who know nothing about it. Are you as good a giver of grace to people as Christ has been to you? I want you to feel what I'm saying. I want you to hear me. That God is always present. He's even in you. He never leaves you. And he knows every opportunity that you have. And if you let those go by, he's going to remind you of it. He's not only a grace giver, but people that are unworthy of that grace, he's going to take it from you. Let's say people, will you? Yeah, I want that to touch you. I want you to feel how serious it is. I want you to see how many people are lost and how few saved. And that's the reason we talked about grace tonight. Not to try to save some people here, but to get people here to save somebody. Okay? Then if you're not right with God, let's get right with him now. All together we stand and sing the invitation here.